Just a couple of weeks ago, we started a new series working through uh, the good news according to Luke, uh, Luke's account of Jesus' life. So today we're going to be in Luke, uh, still in Luke chapter 1. Luke's first chapter is among the longest, not only is Luke's book really long, but his first chapter is really long as he just sets us up for the arrival of Jesus. Last week we uh, we got the story of Zechariah, old Zechariah and old barren Elizabeth uh, and the birth of their son, or at least the... Uh, the promise of the birth of their son John, who would be the forerunner of Jesus, who would uh, prepare the way for the Lord's Messiah. Today, uh, we hear of another miracle baby, even more special than the first. And so, if you would, join me in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. I'm going to be on page 855 if you're using the, the Bible there in the chair. <clears throat> In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, consider another miraculous story, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you enter into our hearts, Lord, and and make what what may be commonplace to us, new again, that we may marvel and adore at what you have done to seek and to save the lost. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, yellow clouds of death that surround our state currently are affecting my uh, nose and throat, so I'm going to be drinking water heavily while we're doing this. I think if uh, Jimi Hendrix had uh, 
ever lived in Alabama, he would have written the song Yellow Haze, not Purple Haze. That's right. I just referenced Jimi Hendrix from the pulpit. All right. Uh, so there's this, uh, there's a blue box in our bedroom, a blue storage tote, and it has been there for quite some time. Uh, it, uh, it has winter clothes in it. Right now it has winter clothes in it. Um, and it's still in our room because the weather in Alabama is so unpredictable. Uh, you'll be wearing a sweater in the morning and shorts and sandals by the afternoon. So, uh, so this blue box has been sitting in our bedroom now for uh, a few months, maybe longer than that. Uh, and it's been there so long that it simply has become just part of the furniture, right? It doesn't belong there. It's, it doesn't really fit there. It's just there. And it's been there so long that we really don't even see it anymore. Uh, and no doubt there are probably things like that in your house, right? Uh, Things that you came in one day, it's been a long day, busy day, and you just set it down right there on the table, uh, and you moved on, and a couple hours later you came back by the table and you said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move that, I'm gonna deal with that, but not right now. And that right, right now became next week, became next month, became last year, right? That's something that was out of place, like everybody right now in the room is like, you know, elbowing their husband for some reason. Um, right. How often, uh, you know, that we something that is out of place becomes commonplace simply because it's just there. It's been there for so long. It's familiar to us. Uh, our, no, our brains are no longer jarred when we see them sitting there. It's just part of the furniture. So let me ask you, how did you respond when I read today's passage? Because here's what you should have heard. A messenger from God, an angel, a messenger from God, tells a young peasant woman who has never been intimate with a man that she is going to have a baby. And that that baby will be the son of God and an everlasting king. Does that not strike you as odd in the least bit? Right? Or is it that this story has become so common to us that it is now just part of the furniture? Should it not strike us as strange or amazing? Uh, shouldn't, shouldn't this kind of be like one of those headlines we see on a tabloid in the checkout line, right? Um, President's baby from angel, you know, from uh, from aliens in space, something like that, right? That that here we have a story about a virgin who is going to give birth to the Son of God. It should absolutely floor us, uh, and for some reason, it doesn't. But whatever that reason might be. Uh, we hear this amazing story about God coming into the world through a virgin's woman. And while the story is amazing, we are not amazed. So this morning, I want to invite you to let's just, let's just sit right here and let's be amazed. Let's hear this the way that Theophilus would have heard it. Theophilus is the original audience for this 
work, Luke wrote to his friend Theophilus so that he would have certainty. Now, here's what we said the very first week when we began this series. Luke writes this very orderly historical account. He, his desire is to write history so that Theophilus, his friend, and others like him may have certainty. Now, if you're going to write an orderly account so that people can have certainty, would you include some legendary myth about a virgin having a baby? No, you would not. Right? That is not the sort of thing that if you're writing an orderly history, you're, you're not you're not all of a sudden going to throw a, a legendary story in there, right? So that right there ought to tell us that Luke believes that what he's writing is true, is actual, factual history. And the rest of the Bible confirms uh, that this is actual, factual history. Now, some you may, you may approach this story and say, well... Yeah, but, you know, people in the first century were, were more prone to believe stuff like this. Uh, they were more superstitious than we are. Now, to that point, I would say, have you met, uh, your neighbors? Um, <clears throat> I should tell you about the, the, the woman that I had a conversation with. Uh, who thought it would be a bad idea to wash her dishes or her clothes or take the garbage out on New Year's Day. Apparently that's a bad omen of the year to come. I don't know. Um, but she was seriously considering this superstition. So I don't know that we can say that people in the first century are any less or any more superstitious than people in the 21st. Okay? Or we may be prone to say, well, but we know so much more now. We, we're a scientific people, not a religious people. And to that, I would simply say, yes, uh, we, we certainly know more about the microscopic level of how children are conceived and born, right? We know about chromosomes and we know what happens when an egg is fertilized. We, we know all of those things that they really did not know. But this story is no less amazing to them than it is to us. They understood how babies were born, okay? Uh, they, they may not know them at the microscopic level, but they certainly understood how that works. And so for an angel to come to a young woman who has never known a man and say, you're going to have a baby and that baby will be the son of God, that would have been just as astonishing to them as it is to us. Just as miraculous to them as it is to us. So, let's not rush past this. Let's not label it as a myth or a legend. Uh, let's, let's give Luke a fair shot. He thinks he's writing history. Maybe we ought to take him at his word. Um, and let's not assume, let's not have the intellectual arrogance to assume that simply because we have a better grasp of medical science that we understand things about the universe that they didn't get. Or that something that would have been, it's remarkable to us, wouldn't have been remarkable to them. Uh, but let's come to this passage uh, and let's simply just aim to be amazed, which I think is what the author is after. Uh just kind of broken it up into to three sections. First, how we see God as the God of the lowly. 
Second, he is the God of the unimaginable. And third, he is the God of the impossible. God of the lowly, God of the unimaginable, God of the impossible. Uh, the first remarkable thing about this story is where it happens and to whom it happens. Look back at verse 26. We are in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. I referenced last week's sermon. And, eight, and uh, Gabriel, the same angel who approached Zechariah, uh, is now sent out again. He is dispatched from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Uh, and the only reason it's called a city in the Bible is because uh, the Greek didn't have a word for inconsequential village. All right. Nazareth was a very small town. Uh, it was an out of the way sort of place in an out of the way sort of region known as Galilee. In fact, uh, you may from time to time, if uh, if you say move on to a, a bigger city. Actually, you know what? We make fun of ourselves plenty. Uh, we make fun of being in Chilton County all the time. Even people who are from here originally still make fun of Chilton County. So I'm not the only one, right? Um, right? We kind of we kind of joke on ourselves, uh, you know. Especially if you're up in the big city, um, you know. We talk, we say things like "country come to city," etc. Well, people talk the same way about Nazareth. Uh, in fact, uh, in John's Gospel, when Jesus is introduced to some people, uh, people who will become his disciples eventually, one of them says, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Right? How in the world am I supposed to take somebody seriously who comes from Nazareth? That was the view of little old Nazareth, of Jesus' hometown. Uh, if you're expecting great, world-changing things to happen, you're not really expecting them from Nazareth. And yet, this is where we're going. You would expect Rome, you would expect Jerusalem, but not Nazareth. If it weren't for the Bible's record, if it weren't that this was Jesus' hometown, we probably wouldn't even know that this village existed. It, may, it, it doesn't score anywhere else in history other than right here. But even more stunning than where Gabriel goes is who Gabriel goes to see. I mean, for the kind of news that Mary gets, you would expect a princess... You would expect somebody of royal or high birth living in a palace. But instead, what you get is the fiancé of the local carpenter craftsman. A young girl named Mary. She's betrothed to Joseph, uh, but betrothal is a little bit more serious than our engagement. The marriage agreement's already made. The couple just doesn't live together yet. They haven't gone through the formal ceremony yet, but the agreement's made, and the only way to break it is via divorce. So uh, she is she is betrothed to Joseph, and uh, the angel walks into her home and says, "Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you." Uh, now that, that word that we translate, O favored one, uh, it means one who has received grace. The word grace and the word favor are the same. And we need to correct what's become a misunderstanding about who Mary is. Uh, when the, the Latin translation of the Bible was written, uh, what we call now the Vulgate, what has been called the Vulgate, 
this phrase was rendered full of grace, not favored one, but one who was full of grace. And that led the Roman Catholic Church to believe and to teach that Mary uh, is someone who actually bestows grace, that she has kind of a special place among the saints and that we ought to pray to Mary. We ought to ask her to pray for us. And all of that is based on a mistranslation. A Mary is not denoted as one who is full of grace. She is not a not one who bestows grace. She is someone who has received grace. So she is not. Um, if anything, Mary is just an ordinary, devout young woman. Now she is a, a god, a godly woman from all we can tell, but she's not sinless. Her womb is not any holier uh, because she hasn't known a man, okay? Uh, she doesn't have any kind of special status. If anything, she's, ac- she's actually the most unlikely candidate for such an honor because there's nothing special about her. She's just a young woman like any other young woman betrothed to a young man living in a small town in an out-of-the-way region that no one's really ever heard of. Which should amplify the grace that has been shown to her and which should tell us that God loves to work in the humble and unexpected. We expect, right, it, it wouldn't surprise us if God had made this announcement to a princess in a palace in Rome, right? Or in some other great city of the world where, uh, where big decisions were made. But it should, it should give us a hint about the kind of God we have when he bypasses the popular famous places and goes to the out of the way places to the least likely of candidates and says, this woman will bear my son, she will conceive, she will bear the son. Uh, this tells us, this tells us God's choice of Mary of Nazareth is meant to tell us just how far God will go. Uh, it, I mean, a, a human throne room, uh, that, that enough would be God condescending, right? God taking a step down. Even a, even our greatest throne room is no match for the glory of the throne room of heaven. But we would at least expect that. But God says, no, we're going to bypass that. I'm going to condescend so far that I'm going to go to Nazareth to Mary to demonstrate just how far I'm willing to go to seek and to save the lost. And if our God is willing to humble himself in this way to reclaim his lost treasure, then what kind of people ought we to be uh, patterning our lives after him? If God is willing to take on the form of a servant as Paul says in Philippians 2, to yield his rightful glory, to bear the shame of a lowly station, then surely we ought to have the same mindset. We ought not to be the sort of people who put on airs, who think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But the story gets even more remarkable. 
It's remarkable enough that God speaks to this woman in this place. But then there's what he, te- there's what he tells her. Mary is uh, understandably shaken. Uh, she's not exactly sure what exactly this unexpected greeting means. And so the angel says in verse 30, don't be afraid. For you have found favor, you have found grace with God. And look, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. Now, this is similar to what Zechariah heard about John in chapter 1 verse 15. John will be great before the Lord. Here, Jesus is simply described as great without qualifier. So while these two stories are parallel to each other, what's even more noticeable about them is their differences. John will be great before the Lord. Jesus is simply great. He will be called great. Uh, He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Most High was the way of referring to God, a, a reverent way of referring to God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Now, just based on where Mary lives and who Mary is, there's no reason her son would be in line for the throne in Jerusalem. Right? So what what Gabriel is doing is he's pointing us back to the Old Testament and telling us that at long last, the promise that God made to David that one of his thrones Uh, one of his sons would sit on his throne and reign forever, is finally coming true in Jesus, right? That this boy that Mary is going to birth, this boy that she will name Jesus, he is going to be the promised Messiah. He is going to be the promised king. He is going to reign over God's people forever. That would have floored Mary. And Mary does... Ask, she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? So Zechariah asked a question uh, and he got he got punished for it. He got a little discipline. All right, Uh, because Zechariah's question was one of unbelief and doubt. Zechariah was saying, "Uh, are you sure about this? I'm going to need a sign. Mary's question is not one of doubt, but of curiosity. It's phrased differently. She says, how is this going to happen since I've, the, the literal translation, since I've never known a man? Right, we understand what that means. Uh, Mary's not questioning, he, she's, her, her response is not one of unbelief, but of curiosity, right? Again, she under, understands the mechanics of conception and childbirth. So she's like, how exactly is this going to happen? Right? And so, Gabriel explains, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, verse 35, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And right here, that word references uh, what the Holy, Genesis 1, 2, where uh, we see the Holy Spirit, this is at the very beginning of time before anything has been created, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep, getting ready to bring new life out of the out of the void, out of the emptiness of the uncreated universe. Same exact thing is happening here. The Holy Spirit is going to hover, and He is going to bring new life 
where there is no life, where there is not the scientific natural possibility for life. The Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to overshadow her and is going to cause uh, a son to be born. And it, and it's beautiful how understated this is. Um, nothing like this in religious history anywhere. Right? The closest you come is like Greek mythology where the gods would sometimes have their way with some unsuspecting victim. But there's no hint of that here. There's no abusiveness here. There's It, it, it doesn't... There's, it doesn't get into the salacious details or anything like that. There's a beautiful understatement of just the Holy Spirit coming and overshadowing Mary so that new life is created in her virgin womb. And because of this, verse 36, excuse me, the end of verse 35, uh, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This boy Jesus will be unique. He will be holy in a way that no human ever born is holy. He won't have the input of an earthly father. He will have God as his father. And therefore, he will be holy in a unique way. Now, we have to ask, why? Why does that matter? Why Why does it matter that Jesus... Uh, is born of a woman and yet is also the Son of God. Uh, this would be, this is a, this is a major wrestling point for many people, right? The identity of Jesus is a place where many people have disagreed, right? Where lots of ink and blood have been spilled over this reality, right? If outside of Christianity, you can get Jesus as a prophet, a great prophet. Even even Jesus had the Holy Spirit for a time, but then uh, when he was crucified on the cross, the Holy Spirit was withdrawn because it's not it's blasphemous for God to be crucified and to die. It's not possible. And the message of early Christianity, the message of Christianity, has consistently been: No, it is possible. It may not make sense. But it is possible that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Two distinct natures in one person forever. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Why is that necessary? Why is it necessary that Jesus be fully God and fully man? Hold on to that question and we'll come back to it. So he's the God of the lowly. He's the God of the unimaginable, and he's also the God of the impossible. Mary didn't ask for a sign, but Gabriel gives her one anyway. He says, now look, verse 36, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be Impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Mary would have known that phrase, just as Elizabeth would have known that phrase, because it references us back to Genesis, to another old barren woman named Sarah. And God had promised Sarah in her old age that she would have a son. 
And that her son would be the son through whom blessing comes to the world. And you know what Sarah did? She laughed. And not a, not a happy laugh. But kind of the sarcastic, yeah right, sort of laugh. And God approaches Sarah and says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? He approaches Sarah in her unbelief and says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah would have a child nine months after that. And she would laugh again, and his name would be Isaac, which means he laughs. And so, again, here we have God speaking through Gabriel, saying nothing will be impossible with God. God will come through on his promises. This is a call to trust. This is a call to faith, which is exactly what Mary does. Look at verse 38. She said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. And just so we're clear, the word servant there uh, is the word for slave. Mary is saying, I'm yours. Do whatever. Mary explicitly trusts in the word of in the words of Gabriel. Right? She says, I am I am your servant. Do uh, do to me, let it be to me according to your word. Now, I want you to think about what this is going to cost, Mary. There is the immediate cost. Uh, she knows, again, Nazareth is a small town. And you know how things are in a small town. When Mary starts to show, and she's not yet married to Joseph, you know what people will say. You know, and we know from Matthew's Gospel, uh, what Joseph will have a right to do. That he will have every right, according to the law, to divorce his fiancée because it will appear that she has been unfaithful. So there will be a high social cost for Mary in trusting the word of the Lord. It will cost her socially. It might cost her her relationship with Joseph. We'll learn that it does not, because the angel also goes to him. Um, but then it will cost them as a couple. Uh, there will always be murmurings in Nazareth. Jesus will always be the bastard son of Joseph. There will be a social cost. But think about what Mary does not yet know. What this will cost her as Jesus gets older. What this will cost her as Jesus goes towards the cross. She does not yet know that she will be standing with a small group in front of a cross where her naked and bloodied son is breathing his last breath. This will be a costly faith to Mary. She does not yet know that that is coming. But she says to the Lord at this point, let it be to me according to your word. She exercises great faith in the promise of God. She believes that nothing will be impossible with God. And so in the same way, we are called to trust the same. Now I want to go back to that question. Why? 
Why did God choose this route? Why does he do the impossible, the impossible, unimaginable, miraculous thing to seek and to save the lost? Why does Jesus have to be human and God at the same time? And to answer that question, you have to answer the question of who is responsible Who is responsible for closing the gap between God and man? Now, if you, uh, in your home, uh, if you have children, uh, or even if you don't, right? Who is usually, who is usually the one responsible for closing the gap, for, for making up for something that was broken, or a breach in the relationship? Who's usually the responsible one? It's the one who did the breaking, right? Uh, if, if you get into an argument, Usually we expect the one who started the argument is the one who's responsible for saying they're sorry. Uh, if one of your children breaks something, it's the child who broke it who's responsible for uh, making up for it, right? And so in the relationship between God and man, who is responsible for the breach? Who is responsible for the break? Man is. Man is responsible to pay man's debt. And yet, if anything, the Bible's repeated story from Genesis up until this point has shown us that man is unable to pay his debt. If anything, he repeatedly keeps breaking. We keep sinning. And so the gulf only gets wider. The debt only grows deeper. And so... God will have to pay the debt himself. And so, the one who comes to seek and to save the lost must be one who can pay the debt, God, but also one who is responsible for it, man. God and man, two natures together. This is what Paul points out in Romans chapter 5, that where the first Adam rebelled and broke the world, the last Adam comes and rescues it. That's why we have the story the way that we do. This miraculous, amazing story of a, bir- of a virgin who will give birth to a son. And that son's name is Jesus. And as Matthew tells us, Jesus means Yahweh saves The Lord is salvation. That's what the name of Jesus means. So, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted, uh, you've never trusted the way that Mary has trusted, you've never trusted that the Lord is salvation, I invite you now to place your trust in Mary's Son. He is truly the Son of the Most High. And he is the king who will reign forever. He is the only one who can close the gap between you and God. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be amazed? Would you help us to marvel? And would you help us to give thanks? To respond to you with words and lives of praise. Because what you have done for us, through Mary's baby boy, through your son, 
our Savior, Jesus. We ask it in His name. Amen.